Good morning, brothers and sisters. Pleasure to be with you. I have to confess that when I heard uh, your assembly met in a log cabin that used to be a place of dining, I couldn't wait to see it. So I actually drove down here earlier last week just to see it because when I was a young lad growing up in Queens, New York, running the streets, my uh, stepdad and my mom, who had a place up near Hopewell Junction, would come up the Taconic and stop for coffee and tidbits in this very place. But it wasn't here. It was over there. But anyway, I was glad to come in and see it. When I saw the elk, I knew I was in the right place. It was a thrill, yeah, right? It was a thrill for a little kid uh, growing up in the city to like be almost in Daniel Boone country or Davy Crockett. That's how it felt to us. It was really fun. So that's my uh, only connection, I think, <laughs> and uh, point of interest. And except um, I understand that there, is, there are roots of uh, the Plymouth Brethren in your background way back. Some of you would be aware of that. Oh, I got an amen on that. I love it when the congregation talks to me. I used to say to my church over at um, uh, Harmony Baptist over toward Middletown that if you don't talk to me, I'm going to leave. I never really did, but... I uh, kind of grew as a brand new believer, I'll give you a little bit of that later, um, by reading some of the great stories of missionaries, etc. And the, one of the very first, and I wasn't a good reader, I need to go on record, it was work for me to read, but I forced myself through this fascinating book called A Narrative of the Lord's Dealings with George Mueller of Bristol. Ring any bells? For those of you not aware, George Mueller of Bristol, by faith, refusing to make appeals to man, trusted himself to God to feed over 10,000 orphans in his season in Bristol in the 1800s, was one of the co-founders of the Plymouth Brethren, as a matter of fact. But what was great about reading his story was the remarkable providences God responding even at the 11th hour to the needs of the orphans, you know, a, a, a milk wagon breaking down right nearby and the driver coming in and saying, I've got all this milk, it's going to rot, can you use it? And they were out of milk. Just an accident, of course. And uh, the baker being awakened to bake bread at 5 a.m. or earlier and the Holy Spirit putting it on the man to bring the bread to the orphanage. Anyway, th his story is full of those things, and um, that kind of printed itself indelibly in my new spiritual psyche as I was born again at the, the age of 20. And uh, I got excited and was called to ministry at the same time. There was an individual that uh, was written about in a book called 19 Gifts of the Spirit. Les Flynn was a pastor down in Nyack, a conservative Baptist. That's some of my roots. And um, he wrote a book called The 19 Gifts of the Spirit. And on the chapter of faith, in the chapter about faith, he likened a certain man that some of you may know of uh, to a modern George Mueller because of his trust in God, his exercising of faith, and his ability to be on that 
what I call praying ground. The old saints used to use that term, being on praying ground with God. His name was Reverend Wynne Relke, and uh, in an area nearby in Carmel, he established a camping ministry for inner city children and disabled children. Happens to be the place where I met my lovely wife who couldn't be with us today, but uh, that was a long time ago. We just passed 50 years. And yeah, I know I don't look that old, do I? But I am, very. And, uh, and uh, Uncle Wynn, as we called him, became a mentor to me. And I was astounded to watch him. We would have um, devotions in the evening and he would petition the father and say, we need this to get through the end of this week or whatever it was, or to pay our volunteers. We were given a love gift every summer. It wasn't a lot, I'm gonna tell you, but it was something. And we were astounded over and over again that the next day or within two days, the actual need would be coming into camp. It was, it was amazing. And he told me stories, he was the kind of guy I had to hang around so that I could absorb as much as I possibly could. So when I had uh, talked to Peter about what I might speak on, uh, I had this passage in my mind. Uh, everybody knows it, and because we know it so well sometimes as we were encouraged, pray it afresh, think it afresh, right? The Lord's Prayer, which really is the disciples' prayer, we tend to go through it so quickly. And Jesus makes some comments about that, and so we want to look at it if we could. But it's speaking about being an, on praying ground, and I wanted to change this a little to talk about the ground of prayer, because what is the basis upon which I can petition the living God? It's him, himself, and his grace. He's the rock that we can stand on, and we can depend, and we can get response from God, which is kind of cool. Anybody ever had an answer to prayer? Okay, at least some of us are on the same page. This is excellent. It's a good start. So I have found that some of the basic texts that we have often memorized that are worth memorizing um, are deep fountains of insight. In other words, they make great catechisms. They make great um, tutorials, like the Ten Commandments. So we have four grandchildren now, and uh, they're still tykes. And uh, I have been coaching my daughter about training the older ones. Just take them through the Ten Commandments and talk about what long it takes to really unpack each thing as you work your way. You know, I love to go either from the top to the bottom or the bottom to the top. You know, the, 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 the least socially negative consequence is what you're thinking in your heart. That's the last commandment, right? Then you work your way up, they get worse. Or you can start at the top, what sets everything in order for the rest of your life. You have no other God except me. I'm the one. Don't make an idol. That's going to come out in a little bit. Anyway, I have to stay on task. My wife said, don't let your ADD run away with you. So I'm going to stay on task. So another passage like that is the Lord's Prayer. And sections like this in the book of Matthew, where it's placed in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's also in chapter, uh, in, in uh, the book of Luke, 11, I believe, and he's, it, it's the same information he's getting across. If you're going to learn how to pray, 
Listen to what I'm saying, the Lord says to his disciples. So when I was unpacking this, uh, I've been filling some pulpits. Uh, it, I, I, you know, if you know you're an artist, you love what you're doing, right? If you know you have the gift to preach, you love what you're doing. So I want to thank you for letting me love what I'm doing this morning. Even if you hate it, I still loved it, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm unpacking the Lord's Prayer, and I get to that last section that Jillian read, right? Am I right, Jillian? That's it. If you don't forget, what does that mean, right? So I got on the subject of forgiveness. That's just one part of the Lord's Prayer. I preached three weeks on that subject, and I was still told, you left us hanging. What's the answer, you know? In other words, it's almost impossible to exhaust the depths of passages like this. Almost impossible. That's how it feels to me. Today, I simply want to bring us up to that part in verse 9, where Jesus says, pray this way. Don't pray this way, don't do this, but do this. And so here's what it says, when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by, mm. truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Boy, is that a statement. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and when you have shut your door, Pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is cool. Non-prayers. The other ones that we're going to look at are the superstitious prayers. But these first group, this first group, oh, I guess I'll finish this. Let me read the second half. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We're going to hold off on that for just a minute. Thank you. He's on a roll. My friend over here. Hello. All right. Two different kinds of prayers Jesus is saying don't do. The first one is non-praying. To these people, the invisible God is literally invisible. Am I making sense? We know that our God is invisible, right? He's the invisible God. He's the living God. He's real. To them, he's not so real. What they're preoccupied with is what we call today image management. Want to make sure everybody thinks I'm good. Anybody ever been trapped in that? As a child of a broken home and a very damaging parent, my father, um, having a sense of uh, being unaccepted or what, what I call rejection uh, is, is something that God had to heal me from. And he did. And I love one of the songs we were singing, that you father the orphans. I mean, I'm not an orphan, but I almost was. And he does do a work of healing. But for these people, this invisible God who can be known, that's not what they're concerned about when they pray. They're concerned about looking good. They're concerned about their performance. And they tend toward what we call, you're all acquainted with it, legalism. You know, we check off our little things. It's like the guy that went up to the temple to pray that Jesus was using as an illustration. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like other people. You know, I'm filling in. I've got Sunday school pins that go down to my knee, and I'm really in. 
which person, the one who said, forgive me because I'm a loser, or him, who went back justified from the temple? The invisible God, he's invisible, but in the wrong way to them. We, as believers, recognize that God looks not just on the outer appearance, right, but on the heart. Before him, I've tried to get this through so many times in congregations, do you realize that everything will be laid bare, absolutely naked? There'll be nothing hidden. He sees it all. What they see doesn't matter. What God sees is everything. Somebody mentioned in prayer this morning, revival. I'm a little bit of a fanatic on that, but I won't uh, indulge myself right now. But I will simply say that a revival principle, revival is not holding special meetings. Revival is when the church is renewed. The church becomes normal, you know, and the Holy Spirit works and brings people to faith and also transforms people who've been stuck in their spiritual life. Nobody here has ever been stuck, I'm sure. The revival principle that has been key in my life so many times is you have to break the bondage of worrying more about what people think rather than what God knows. God knows what's really going on inside of you. He knows. Which, which really makes it kind of fun that God says, you know, come to me as Father. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But that's the wrong way to pray. Don't pray that way. Okay, that's just, that's one point out of 52 that I have. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. What people think is less important than what God knows. Then the second exhortation is when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition. They're hoping that maybe something will work. That's called superstition. You know, non-believing mantras that I repeat. And I've been around the globe. There are literally these things going on when people worship their gods, if they're false gods. In the days of Jesus, of course, in the Roman Empire, you had all kinds of local gods. You know that the, the, uh, the Romans got furious with the Christians because they were even referred to as atheists. Because in that culture, you could honor many gods. And these crazy people had this idea that there's only one true God, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why that was their proclamation, Jesus Christ is Lord, atheists. One of the great uh, saints was uh, martyred when everyone was yelling atheist at him. He turned around, looked at the crowd, and said, atheists. I think it was, I don't think it was Polycarp. Maybe it was. See, that's what happened when my ADD kicks in. Let me get back on task. Here we go. You can see this kind of hope-so praying all around. In the old days, these various gods had to be appeased. They were capricious. They were cruel. They were immoral, things like that. And, uh, oh, we, we've got to try to stay safe, if you will, or appease them. Today, it's um, manifested in other ways, memorials, whatever. Somebody has been lost in an accident on the side of the road. People light candles and hope a little bit of praying will help their soul, perhaps, which we know from a biblical standpoint that ship has sailed. And... And uh, maybe they're asking for their own, you know, clean me up, Lord, let me take life more. I don't know. But it's more like superstition or practicing magic, hoping, hoping. Here's the problem with it. There's no ground to stand on there. You don't have a sure footing. 
your hope-so religion, which God has put us way past that in his mercy and goodness, right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. The true God, he says, Jesus says, saying, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your dad is usually for you. I mean, there are unhealthy dads. I already told you that I had to come out of that. I'm still, after 50 years of walking with Jesus, I still am growing in terms of that healing, of knowing that my dad loves me. And he does. Go figure. <laughs> he loves me. The true God is a father who loves us. And so that brings us to Jesus' words to his disciples. And this is the verse I want to really park on. So then, Jesus said, pray then in this way. Two things come out in this verse. We can just park here, and we could take weeks on it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be sanctified. Let your name, which represents him, be treated as holy, not just in me, which is where a lot of Christians stumble, I think, you know. Well, I forget that I'd like your name to be hallowed in me every day. Hallowed be your name, not only in me, but also in all the world. Know that he is a father. A father is a person. He's the living God. He's personal. He's relational. He's loving. He's a sure ground that you can stand on when you come to him. Anybody want to say amen? amen. Okay, I just, just checking. I'm in the right place. All right. He's our father, and he cares about us. <clears throat> when I was uh, working on... Uh, my doctoral studies at Covenant Theological. That's the Presbyterian Church of America. They're the good guys. I just want you to know. They're the good guys. Great people. I was in, an uh, in a class on worship. Notice that Jesus begins teaching his disciples how to pray by training them to worship. Look up. Worship. Get your eyes. You know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. There's a song like that, right? There were two brothers leading this class, but one in particular was a worship leader in a Presbyterian church, but very creative, very, very creative. He uh, used a video, and I won't even talk about it, that, that got our attention where, where something made everything stop. You know? Everything stops in the middle of something. You know, some activity, some flurry of activity. Um, parents here, have you ever had to uh, get your child's attention? All the kids are getting nervous all the time. You know, you ever do this? Look at me. <laughs> what, mom? This uh, worship leader was saying, worship is is scheduled into our Christian life to help God get our attention. <laughs> now, we always think of that negatively, right? We think, oh, did you listen to me, young lady? You know, that kind of, but it can also be, look at me. Don't ever think I don't love you, right? It can be, don't you ever listen to those thoughts about yourself. 
you don't deserve to live or whatever the lie is, right? That's out there, even for little kids, I'm telling you. Oh, I, I'm gonna stay on task. <laughs> Worship is this, get a good look at my face and listen to what I'm telling you. So Jesus says, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <clears throat> I love that picture. In the book of Hebrews, um, there's a passage, uh, I preached on that for a while, and there's two sections I want to use. This is one, you'll recognize it, without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I want to come back to that in just a second. Rewarder of those who seek My daddy will listen. The thing that impressed me about Uncle Wynn, you know, when your kids, little kids, you're, let's fold our hands and bow our head. Remember we were taught to pray like that? I would be watching Uncle Wynn when he would ask God for these favors and he'd look up with his eyes closed and you could almost, I mean, you know, almost a glow. I'm expecting my father to bless us. And he did over and over. There was that anticipation, that expectancy of daddy's, of course daddy's going to give us what we need. Like I said, it was riveted into my psyche. But this idea that he will reward those who come to him, the reward of those who seek him. Um, I'm an NASV person, but uh, on this one I have to confess, the King James and even the NIV does a better job on that thing at the end that says, of those who seek him. Anybody know the King James language? Diligently. Those who diligently seek him and uh, earnestly in the NIV, they tried to communicate the reality because there is a word that is used um, in the Greek that means pursuing, intensely looking for. It's the word that was used when Esau lost his birthright. Remember that story? And he was like bummed. That's an understatement. And it says he pled earnestly with tears that he could get it back. It was too late. He was earnest. He was... The other word, that, uh, the same word is used for the prophets who used to look back at the older prophets' writings to peer into it and dig out and find, find what the meaning was. It was pursuit. Isn't that interesting? He is the rewarder of those who go after him that really want it. <laughs> I used to say sometimes to my staff over at the other church, you know, you got to want it. Yeah. So Uncle Wynn had an influence on me of looking to a father who is good and willing to bless us. And then there's this comment that Jesus adds to say, hallowed be your name. There's something about that pursuing and seeing him as he is. That's what brings this hallowed thing into perspective right now. But before I go to that, let me just mention, in referencing Hallow Be Thy Name, Jilden Hayes, he's a South African author who wrote uh, the commentary on the Gospel of Luke, said it so well, I thought I'd just copy it and read it to you. I think I have a quote of him in the, in the screens. The name of God in the Bible is the expression of his being especially 
insofar as he has revealed himself to man. So the first supplication is that God should be sanctified not only in the one praying, but in all creation. Can you imagine thy kingdom come, him being sanctified in all of creation, what it would look like this morning with what's happening in the world? I was thinking of that last night. I was thinking, oh my gosh, can the rule of Jesus come now, please? Supplication is that God should be sanctified not only in the one praying, but in all creation. The petition is that God should so work inwardly upon the one who prays and upon all others that they shall recognize who he is, his self-revelation, his holiness, etc. And he adds this, thy kingdom come, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done as it is in heaven in Matthew are in essence one petition expressed in a threefold way. Thy kingdom come, let thy divine rule come. If he's sanctified in my heart, his rule has taken place, right? I'm under a king. Uh, we used to do communion together, and uh, we stole something from a wonderful book. I recommend it to you um, called Tales of the Kingdom by Karen, and, uh, Karen Maines and her husband, David Maines. Artsy people, really excellent. And um, in that book, they had a toast. They had a cry because Satan had taken over ter territory, the enchanter, and people believed there's still a king somewhere, and he's a good king. And if we could see him, we'd all want him to rule. And so they would often toast the king. And I, I ended communion services with, to the king and to his kingdom. There is a king. My wife would always refrain. Yes, there is a king. And there is. And all the chaos, thank God. And his reign is coming one day. Thanks be to God. Hallowed be your name. Know that he is holy. We all know this verse out of the book of Isaiah. You'll recognize it. You can probably quote it yourself. Woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's the balance in this very first command about how to pray. He's Father and He loves you. He's holy. And in the Old Testament, when they saw the angel of God, the response was, we're dead, right? How many times you see that in the Old Testament? And here's this intimate with God, Isaiah, one of his prophets, I am done here. I live among people with unclean lips. I have been with unclean lips. I have seen God Almighty, the Holy One. He's like a fire that burns everything. I think we've uh, lost track of some of that. I'm going to opine for a minute. What time do I need to be quiet? Two minutes from now? Am I boring you? Thank you, Lord. Okay. When I became a believer, I'm just going to tell you this. I didn't have a little booklet from Campus Crusade, which, by the way, were very useful, you know, Four Steps to Peace with God. I didn't have a sample prayer. I didn't have, here's how to invite Christ in your life. I watched, I was a hippie freak goofball. My mother should have thrown me out of the house. But I was in the house and I was watching TV. Three nights in a row, Billy Graham was preaching the gospel. I don't remember one thing he said. I don't. I just know on the third night, 
all of a sudden, lights came on. And I went, that's the truth. And that's what I'm going to give my life to. And I went down into my room and I got, it's the only thing I knew about to do religious. I got on my knees and I said, God, if you'll show me who you are, I'll do anything you ask. That was my conversion prayer. Those who diligently say, show me who you are. I know this whole world just opened up miraculously in my mind. I don't understand it all, but if you'll show me who you are, I'm in. I found out he was holy, and I'm not. Have you noticed that? Anybody get what I'm saying? I want to read something from a book I also recommend. I know that my brother over here has been in the presence of John Stott. I've only stood at one of his pulpits on Long Island. He was there. I, was, I touched it. But anyway, a little humor. Sorry. Very little. There's much shallowness and levity among us. In fact, the reason I'm reading this is because I've been in ministry 45 plus years, and I've watched people declaw Aslan. Everybody know who I'm talking about? Aslan, the lion we sang about him, the lion of Judah. Oh, we want a nice little kitty cat. No claws, toothless, meow. And I've been frustrated when I hear people dumb down the holiness of God and the fear of the Lord. Because you can't. So what is it? Is he a loving father or is he a, a, a righteous judge filled with wrath? The answer class is yes. Yes. Oh, I want one of the other. Well, sorry, that's not the true God. Don't remake him in your image. You'll get it wrong. That's why the second commandment, don't make an idol, because you'll always get him wrong. I'm preaching, I'm sorry. There is much shallowness and levity among us, he says. This is John Stott. Prophets and uh, the cross of Christ, by the way. The reason I'm reading it is because of this statement. Let me say it. So then, the cross of Christ is the event in which God makes his holiness and his love simultaneously known in one event in absolute manner. It consists in the combination of inflexible righteousness with its penalties, but also transcendent love. Both together. Burkhauer said in the cross of Christ, God's justice and love are simultaneously revealed Calvin, echoing Augustine, was even bolder. He wrote of God that in a marvelous and divine way, he loved us even when he hated us. Wow! Which is it? Yes. Anyway, let me make this short. <clears throat> there is no... The old psalmist would probably say sometimes with what they see that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch, squat. We don't kneel nowadays, let alone prostrate ourselves with humility before God. I know some of you do. I do too. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. We saunter up to God to claim his patronage and friendship. This is what captured me one day. It does not occur to us that he might send us away. Now we know in Christ he won't. In Dale's words, it's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe sin provokes the wrath of God. 
how long you could meditate just on that first verse. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, I think I've said enough. I just want to close with this comment from uh, a famous author. Some of you have heard of A.W. Tozer. Once in a while, he says something that jacks you up a bit. You know what I'm saying? And uh, this was the one that I picked to read in closing because I wanted to give some uh, fodder for the discussion group later in particular. Uh, there's so many things you could read from him, but this was the one that I wanted to get a hold of. If I can just find the right page. Here it is. It's in the preface. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our, our idea of God is erroneous and inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is, rather than remade in my own image, more nearly as he is. I know there's an art contingent here, and so you appreciate the things that beauty can do, speaking into us, because God's all, there's a song I love, Beautiful One. You know that one, Beautiful One I Love? Beautiful one I adore. That grabbed me. I, I heard it for the first time worshiping with a bunch of sexually broken people who were struggling. I'm talking ex, working toward loving God, and it just sank into my spirit. I said, I love that. I lived in Arizona for nine years, been to the Grand Canyon, camped at the bottom, done that a number of times. One day we went back for a visit. We had children at the time. I walked up to the edge. And you've heard the expression, something took your breath away. I've seen it before. I've been in it. It's just rocks, very hot, especially down at the bottom. I walked up to the edge and something just pushed me back. I literally stepped back. I was overwhelmed. And because I love Jesus, my first thought was, God, you are amazing. I was scared to death. At the grandeur, the size of it was beyond grasping. And that's small compared to the universe. And he made all that as well. We need to see him rightly. May God help us to do so.